So people, welcome to Think Jewish, and we'd like to dedicate this class to Alejandro and Shoshana on their engagement. Mazal tov, mazal tov. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so, tonight's class. Tonight's class is called Larger Than Life. There's an interesting theme that I've actually heard from the Rebbe of Blessed Memory that goes as follows. The name of a Torah portion, any name, is not just a coincidence, but actually identity. There's a story in the Talmud about the sages that they went to a certain inn and it was normal in those days. You didn't have the safe, you know, in your closet, in your hotel room. You used to trust the innkeeper. You'd give him the stuff. And on the way out, you'd pick it up. And the Talmud says that a mayor asked him what his name was. And when he heard the name of the person who owned the inn, he was not comfortable. The name had a bad meaning. And the other sages says, well, you can't really extrapolate from that because he got the name by his Brit and his name. <laughs> he wasn't even, you know, a, there was no personality developed yet. So they gave it to the person and Rabbi Meir didn't. And at the end, the story goes on. It's a story about washing your hands before Birkat Amazon 2 and washing your lips before you do the Birkat Amazon. It's called Mayim Achronim. But to make the long story short, Rabbi Meir was right. He actually told him, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, we never got money from, I never got money from any of you to hold or anything ex expensive or anything. Um, I don't know you guys, you know, thank you for using my in, but uh, I have nothing of yours. And how they had to fool the wife to get back the stuff and it ended up not pretty. But the point is the Talmud says Rabbi Meir would emphasize, he would actually focus on the name of a person. If this is concerning a person, how much more so when we come to the Torah, the name of a Torah portion identifies the Torah portion. Now usually, as in our case, if you wouldn't pay attention, the name Chaye Sarah, which is the portion that we're talking about tonight, simply has to do with only the first piece of the Torah portion. It begins with the death of Chaya, the death of Sarah, I'm sorry, the death of Sarah, and her burial. After that, it really has nothing what to do with the name. It goes on to the story of Isaac finding his Shidduch, Rivka, and then from there it goes on to Avraham remarrying Keturah, having kids, and making sure before he dies that all the children are given gifts and sent away because Isaac would be the sole inheritor of all his possessions, physically and spiritually. But what does that have to do with Chayasara? So if you don't pay attention to this emphasis of the Rebbe, okay, the Torah portion's name has to do with the opening of the Torah portion. But not so. In the Rebbe's teachings, he clearly talks many times that the name of the Torah portion is the name of the entire Torah portion from the first verse to the last verse. And thus there has to be a theme that is hidden in the name Chaya Sarah that doesn't have to do just with the opening of the Torah portion, but every single detail of the Torah portion. And of course, not often is it easy to find. But I'd like to present to you something that carries the theme in the beginning of the Torah portion, in the middle of the Torah portion, and at the end of the Torah portion. The name Chayesara in itself is very problematic. The name Chayesara means the life of Sarah. How does the Torah portion start? And Sarah lived for 127 years, and Sarah died. I mean, that, what a way to start the Torah portion, right? You, well, you go into Barnes and Nobles and you buy a book called The Life of Sarah and you open up the first chapter, Sarah died, Sarah was buried, and now we're going to talk about her kids. That's not what you expect. If it's called a book, the book is called The Life of Sarah, you expect to hear the story of Sarah's life. And yet in the Torah portion, it's quite the contrary. The Torah portion is called Chaya Sarah, the life of Sarah. It begins with the death of Sarah, right there in the first two verses. A couple of more verses is the negotiation of her burial spot, which Avram buys from Ephron, the Ma'arat HaMachpelah and Hebron, the first piece of land that was bought by a Jew in Israel, and well charged as you read the story. 
and then that's it. So why would we call the Torah portion the life of Sarah if in this Torah portion there's everything but the life of Sarah? That's the simple question that starts off with this name. So obviously this name carries within it a very specific theme and teaching. Another thing I want to point out to you, I'm going to just point out to the three places that I want to focus on today. Another thing which is very interesting, we hear how Abraham makes his servant the one who was in charge of his whole household, the famous Elazar, and what does he tell him? He tells him that you are to make an oath to me, that you will find a shidduch for my son, and there's two conditions. Number one, it must be from the family. Number two, my son is not leaving Israel, then called Eretz Canaan, the land of Canaan, but whoever you will find must be willing to relocate here. Avraham, I mean, I'm sorry, Elazar, his servant, when he actually introduces himself to the family of Rivka, how does he introduce himself? Eved Avraham Anochi. He doesn't even have a name. The Torah portion refers to him as, and the servant said, and the servant of Abraham said, and even when he introduces himself, he doesn't have a name. I am the servant of Abraham. Interesting to point out is, let me tell you a little bit about who this person was. Our sages say that he was the son of Nimrod. Nimrod, who was the, the superpower in his times, where the Torah testifies upon him that he was the superpower of his times. When the Torah introduces his birth, when it goes through the lineage. And then, later on, when him and Abraham have this showdown, where he tells Abraham, if you're not going to bow to me, I'm going to throw you into the furnace, the burning furnace, and a miracle happens, he comes out alive. Our sages tell us that Nimrod at the time did do teshuva, and his son, the prince, actually says, I'd rather be a servant to Avraham than a prince to Nimrod. And he leaves. So he was no small person. Another thing is that Avraham in the Torah, uh, Elazar, I keep saying Avraham, his servant Elazar is called Dameshek. And what does Dameshek mean? One of the interpretations our sages say, it's a play of words called Neutrikin. And it actually stands for Dole Umashke. He actually absorbed and gave forth everything that Avraham knew. Avraham taught him everything. And he went on to teach that everything to other people. Dole Umashke. So now besides being the prince of the superpower in his times, he also was scholar par excellence. A third thing we know about him from the Torah is that when Avram went to war to save his nephew slash brother-in-law Lot, what happens at the time? It says that he went and it gives a number of people, 318 I believe, and what does it say there? Our sages tell us that that number 318 is actually a secret. He only went with his servant Elazar. And Elazar's name, numerical value, equals to that number. Thus we have not only the prince of the superpower, the scholar par excellence who studied everything from Abraham and then taught it to others, we also have the mightiest warrior. And obviously it's in his genes if we say he's the prince of Nimrod. All these qualities go to naught when he identifies himself. I'm not the parentis of Avraham. I am not the prince of the superpower. I am not the mighty warrior who took out four kings. Who am I? The servant of Avraham. Eved Avraham Anochi. Why? And then I want to jump to the end of the Torah portion. The end of the Torah portion actually is very interesting in two aspects. What is precisely said there is that Abraham sent away all his children, gave them gifts, so that none of them would inherit together with Isaac, number one. 
Number two, we find hidden in the words A, that Yishmael allowed Isaac to be the leader. It says Isaac and Yishmael buried Abraham. He acknowledged that Isaac is the true child. Number two, the language it uses for death for Yishmael, Vayigva, is saved only for the righteous. And thus we know that when God promised Abraham that you will have a good elders, you won't die with pain, that meant one of the interpretations is that his son Yishmael would do teshuva. And thus we know that Yishmael did teshuva. Three interesting parts of the Torah portion. Now let's return to the first part. Why would you call the Torah portion that begins with the death of Sarah and the burial of Sarah, of Sarah why would you call it the life of Sarah? Chaya Sarah. And one of the interpretations that we're going to focus on today is that what is the definition of the life of Sarah is the fact that her children carried on her legacy. When I say children, it's obviously child, but you know that parents very uh, romantically tell their in-law, whether it be son-in-law or daughter-in-law, you are to me like my child. So much so that actually we say, Chosno Kibno, his son-in-law is like his son. So therefore, her children, Isaac and Rebekah, only when we find out that they carry on that legacy, A, she carries on the legacy of kindness, the sign that she would have to prove herself as the appropriate one, the chosen one, the basherta one, is that she lived with the kindness that was in Abraham's household. Not only would he give him to drink, Allah to drink, but she would also give all the camels to drink. The sign of kindness. On top of that, when Isaac brings her into Sarah's tent, the ultimate test would be, can she fill the shoes of Isaac's mother? Three signs. The cloud on top of the tent, the candle of Shabbat would burn all week long, and her challah, her bread, would have a special blessing of a taste. And then, when everything does return, the blessings that Sarah had now was what Rivka had, Rebecca had. Then it says that Isaac finally found comfort for the death of his mother. Thus we can say, Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah, will not be defined by how Sarah lived her life but rather that the legacy goes on with her children to the point that her only child who never was able to be comforted of her passing is finally comforted because he finds the woman through which Sarah lives on. Thus we now can say that this is the true story of the life of Sarah. And let's focus on this for a moment. Everyone's born and everyone dies until Mashiach comes. Life is not eternal. The question is whether you can create something eternal while you are alive. That's the question. So I am born, one day I will die. And then the question is, the real question of life is, in between my birth and my passing, can I create something that will live beyond me? That's the definition of life. Let us take it from a very Kabbalistic point of view. Definition of life according to Kabbalah is very interesting because there seems to be an argument between us and God. One is known as Dat Elyon, the supernal knowledge, and one is known as Da Tachton, the lower, the inferior knowledge. The inferior knowledge, which is what we have, we proclaim that creation is Yesh Ma'ayin, known in Latin as Ex Nihilo, something out of nothing. So we define ourselves as something, 
and the eternal one, blessed be he, as nothing. Now, when we say yesh ma'ayin, we're not, God forbid, saying that God is nothing. What we are saying is that he defies any definition and capacity of what we call something. We do not call something something unless it has some type of description, a place, a time, a definition. We need to be able to define it, to call it a something. And thus we can't call God something. God has no beginning. God has no end. Our sages say that the world is not the place of God, but God is the place of the world. So Hashem has no place, omnipresence. God has no description. The sin of idolatry is not only to serve an idol, but the sin of idolatry is to define God. Because the minute you give God a definition, you have committed idolatry. Because the prohibition is not to give any form, shape, or picture to God. The minute you give any description, mind you, that when I say God is compassionate, that is a form of idolatry. God is not more compassionate than he is strict and just. God is not more good than he is bad. Because in the essence of God, what is good and what is bad? So, truthfully, when we talk about God, there's no description. There was a great chassid, lived in Israel, Rabbi Moshe Gerari, a very, very famous intellectual chassid. There was another chassid who I don't recall his name, besides being extremely intellectual, he was also a jokester. So one day he comes into shul, and he wants to start davening, and by chassidim, you don't start davening before you have what to daven with. And that's why we learn Hasidus before davening. There's a very clear teaching that before davening, the focus has to be on belittling my ego and making great God. That's, that, that's the prerequisite to daven. So you study Hasidus, and over there you learn the greatness of God to which automatically everything else pales. So he walked over to Rabbi Grau and he said, listen, I'm in a rush. I just came into shul and I have to daven, but I need something to daven with. I want to daven specifically about a certain part of teaching, which is atzmut. Atzmut means the essence of God. Now, chsidis, the teachings upon the essence of God, I mean, can you really talk about the essence of God? So Rabbi Moshe Gerari, immediately realizing who he's talking to and what the question was, realized that this is not going to end pretty. So he tells him, go learn. What do you want from me? But the guy wouldn't leave him alone. The guy kept saying, Rabbi Moshe, clearly says in the introduction of Tanya, the Alter Rebbe says very harsh words on someone who knows Chassidus and is not willing to teach it. Someone who's withholding teaching Torah. I'm asking you please to give me a word of teaching of Chassidus on Atzmut, on the essence of God. Finally, the Moshe Gerari realized this guy is not going to back off until he says something. So he figured he'll just pull out a quote from somewhere in Chassidus on Atzmut and get it over with. So he turns around to him and says, okay, I'm going to tell you something about Atzmus. And then the next word he says, this Chassid gives him a slap. Obviously not a hard slap, but a patch. He asked him, what was that all about? He says, don't you understand? The minute you start talking, you've lost atzmut, essence. Any word is going to be definitive and descriptive. If it's definitive and descriptive, you've lost connection with atzmut. Because the essence of God has no definition and has no description. So thus, our take is that we are a something because we fit the parameters of a something we fit the criterias of a something, and God is nothing. Why is he nothing? Because he defies anything that we can categorize as a something. And thus, normally in Chassidus, when you talk about creation, as the Ramban, Nachmanides, says on the second word of the Torah, Bereshit, Bara, Nachmanides says in all the words you have in Hebrew for creation, the only one, which is the word for ex nihilo, yeshma'ayin, is bria, bara. So when we talk about creation, 
we, the inferior knowledge, the human being, we see it as yesh ma'ayin, ex nihilo. We are something and God is nothing. However, the other opinion is, what does the supernal knowledge say? The bird's eye view, the worm's eye view looks up. What does the bird's eye view say? The bird's eye view says, no. It's not yesh ma'ayin, it's ayin me'yesh. God is something and we are nothing. And again, how can you say we're nothing? You can't say we're nothing. Because the Torah clearly says that God created something. This is not a uh, philosophical discussion of maybe we're not really here. It's very simple. The Torah says, Bereshit bara God created. And if God created us, we are a creation. If we're a creation, we're something. However, this something in the face of God is nothing. If he's defined as something, then we're defined as nothing. Let's talk about this definition. I told you that God is called nothing in the inferior knowledge, the lower knowledge, because he defies anything that would define as something. Now let's talk about what would be the definition of something versus nothing in the superior knowledge. In the ayin miyesh, the something out of nothing is the opposite. Now we're talking about nothing out of something. The definition of something in God's world, in the superior knowledge, is something which has a beginning and an end never really existed. Temporary is not a true existence. The only definition of a true existence is something which has no beginning and has no end. You'll find this, for example, in halakha, in Jewish law. When it comes to the laws of the red heifer, it says you have to place the ashes, mayim chayim el keli. You have to put living waters in the vessel and put the ashes in the water. What's the definition of living waters? What's called mayim chayim? What's dead waters? So the Talmud questions this. The Torah is giving you a specific type of water which is permissible and all else is not. So it says like this. It says, if there is a body of water which dries up once in seven years, that's not called living waters. So even though it's here now, the fact that it will end tells me that what is here now is not a true here now. Because to us in the world of relativity, nothing is absolute. Everything is defined comparatively, relatively. Is he rich? Compared to this person, he's rich. Compared to that person, he's poor. Everything is comparative. It's a world of relativity. However, in the world of absolute, that which will once not exist, never existed. And while it existed, it isn't the true existence. So that means that from God's perspective, what's the definition of something that which always was, always is, and always will be. Thus, when you take this understanding and bring it to the name of our Parsha, we understand why the name Chayesara can only be given to Sarah, the life of Sarah can only be given to Sarah when you see that her true definition of life is eternal. And how do we know that a true definition of life is eternal? Is because after she dies, Isaac and Rebecca are living her legacy. Thus the definition of life cannot be told in between birth and death. Only that in between birth and death, you've created something that lives beyond your, your grave. Because after she's buried, everything goes on. Even the three miracles of her tent went on. Rebecca was her true legacy. Isaac was her eternal life. Thus we understand the definition of life can only be given 
to that which is larger than life. The question is, how does the finite mortal being ever embrace eternal life? Now, I want to just parenthetically speak about this. It's not really what I'm basing the class on. But there's a very interesting teaching that Jacob never died. You don't find in the verse that Jacob died. He was gathered onto his people. That that word death doesn't apply. That just doesn't say. And thus our sages say, Yaakov Avinu lo met. So Gemara asks the question, what do you mean Jacob didn't die? The verse clearly says that they embalmed him. Embalmed him means he opened up his body, took out organs, wrapped it in special type of stuff. I mean, he did do a little reading on Egyptian embalming. You can't do that to a person while he's alive. It says clearly that they buried him. So what does it say? The sages ask, what are you saying Yaakov you know, didn't die? If the verse, okay, the verse didn't say he died. But what the verse does say tells me that he wasn't alive. If he's not alive, he's dead. So the answer that because his offspring is alive, he is alive. And this itself the Rebbe deals with. The Rebbe says there are those that learn what we call a balabateshepshat. Balabateshepshat means it's very, what should I say, <laughs> formal. His kids are alive, his kids keep on his legacy. So therefore, he's still alive. But the Rebbe says that's not the case. Because there's something special about Jacob. It says it by Jacob, not by Abraham, not by Isaac. So even though you can say Abraham, yeah, Abraham had Ishmael and other kids. And Isaac had Esau. And Jacob, his bed is complete, we say. All his 12 children became the 12 tribes of God. Shifte Yudke. But the Rebbe doesn't want us to just learn simple pshat there that that's it you know he really died why didn't he die because his kids are alive so the Rebbe takes the concept of life as having an impact on the physical world the tzaddik who did what he did while he's alive and then after that goes to heaven and in heaven goes on to receive the greatest rewards there are, the spiritual rewards, studying Torah. And of course, of course, when people go to a graveside because they have tzarot and he asks for prayers, of course a tzaddik doesn't hold back what he could. But the tzaddik has primarily changed his main home. His main home is in heaven when the people knock on his door. Obviously he does what he can for them. He stands before the throne up high and he prays. The definition of eternal life. I mean, think for a moment. Every Jew has eternal life because the body decomposes, but the soul lives on. But what I'm thinking over here is that the main emphasis is, which is the soul's primary zip code? Down here or up there? The soul that is willing to take upon itself because that was his whole life or her whole life was to help people down here. So such people are given the gift by God to be able to continue doing that. The tzaddik who forfeited his own spiritual growth, spiritual peace, spiritual bliss because he or she has made himself completely available to all other people who are suffering physically or spiritually. Such people, even after they pass on, their soul's primary home is here, not there. And thus we can say upon them eternal life. And that's why when we talk about Sarah's eternal life, we're talking about her continual daily impact on the physical world and the people here. If you read what Sarah's life was, it says clearly 
the souls which they made in Haran. And our sages say, what does it mean, the souls which they made in Haran? It says, Avraham converted the men and Sarah converted the woman. She didn't live within her own righteousness. Every opportunity she had, she reached out to others. And thus her eternal life is defined by her continuing doing so. Thus her life is not defined on what she did when she was physically alive. Her life is defined on what she continues doing after she sheds her, her physical vessel. So the theme here is to be larger than life. And from the supernal knowledge point of view, that is the only definition of life. And until you can prove that you're eternal, you really never lived. That's amazing. And that's what we're learning from this week's Torah portion. But the question is how? How do you do that? Especially we're not talking about the righteous, even though clearly our, our sages say in the Rebbe Blessed Memory we repeated over and over and over. Every time he spoke about a righteousness, he would say, kulam tzadikim, and your, your nation, all of them are righteous. But for many, that is potential that needs to still be actualized. And I'm on that list. So what is the message to us? How can we become eternal? That's the question. For that, we go to story number two. The secret of the servant of Abraham was that he was so powerful, so righteous, so royal and yet he knew that if he would define himself as the son of Nimrod the student of Avraham the warrior who took out four kings he can't be eternal here is the interesting interesting equation of eternal life until I don't stop being me I can never be me. What an interesting equation. Until I'm not willing to let go of being only me, I could never truly be me. And thus we're going to jump all the way to Deuteronomy. In God's smallest eulogy ever performed in the history of Jewish people with a microphone. Vayamat Moshe Eved Hashem. Moses died the servant of God. Now by golly, if there's one person that we could have given a six and a half hour eulogy where everyone would be interested because it's just awesome, just go through his life events. Those written in the Torah, splitting the sea, dealing with Pharaoh, up Mount Sinai, down Mount Sinai. To the ones that are not written in the Torah, I don't know if you're aware that Moses was a king in a very in an African country somewhere for 40 years. That eulogy could have gone on and on and on forever, and we'd all be sitting at the edge of our seats. And all God says is, "Vayamat Moshe Eved Hashem." Why? Because God was not here to point out that which Moses accomplished in the relative world of existence, in the world of relative existence. Rather, God was here to point out the eternal life of Moses. And what made Moses eternal was that as great as he was, he was able to let go of himself and then find himself nothing more than Eved Hashem. And thus when the Jews come and complain to him, his answer is, What are we? Who are we? You're talking to me like I'm in charge here. I'm not in charge. I'm nothing more than God's megaphone. Nothing is me. For 40 years, every miracle that he performed, and they asked him, how'd you do that? He would turn to the casket of Joseph and say, it's the great Joseph. Joseph, who I took out of Egypt, his coffin, bringing it to Israel. 
It's him. It's not me. Thus understand that step two of the theme of the Torah portion is answering us how. How can we become eternal? How can you and I become a Chaye Sara? And the answer is that most of us don't because we think that to be, we've got to be all we can be. And that's it. Now, true, we need to be all we can be. Elazar was the Prince of Nimrod. Elazar was the scholar par excellence. Elazar was the mighty warrior who took out four kings. And when all that is said and done, he knows that greater than all of this is that I am the servant of Abraham. Our sages say the servant of a king is a king. Because that vessel is transparent. And thus when he talks, the king talks. The servant of a king is a king. Because everything the servant of a king does is with the seal of the king. Thus step number two tells us something amazing. If we're just willing to leave go of our definition of me. My definition of me is this is what I do, this is what I don't do. This is what I'm good at and this is what I'm not good at. This I can give up, this I can't give up. That's not eternal. But when I do everything I could and then comes that glorious moment where after everything I could do I did, I open up my hands and leave go. I surrender. I want to share with you a very interesting story that was brought to my attention. One of the Rebbe's emissaries, we're talking about in the early years, 50s, 60s, he was doing what he was doing, all the good work that uh, an emissary of Chabad does, and then he gets a phone call from Rabbi Chadakov, and Rabbi Chadakov tells him, we need you to open up in your community a Hebrew school. And he told Rabbi Chadakov, I can't. And Rabbi Chadakov means, what do you mean? Ask, what do you mean you can't? So he explains to Rabbi Chadakov, I know what I could, I know what I can't. I just can't do that. It's just not me. I can't do it. Not I don't want to. I can't. I don't have what it takes to do such an undertaking. Arguing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then again he tells Rabbi Chadakov, I can't do this. I'd love to. I can't. Rabbi Chadakov paused. Rabbi Chadakov, by the way, is, was the top secret, secretariat of the Rebbe. And Rabbi Chadakov said, one second, tell me. And that which you did accomplish to do was because you could do it? By definition, the word emissary means that the person represents he who sent him. The same thing I met once with a doctor, a very interesting doctor, a doctor in Weston, way back when Chabad of Weston first started, I was going there to help out. And I met this doctor and I asked the doctor, how do you deal with the loss of a patient? And he told me the most brilliant words, which I always carry with me. If I take credit for the patients that I healed and saved their life, then I have to take the blame for the patients that I could not heal and could not save their life. However, if I know it's God who heals, then as long as I do the best that I can, I can also accept that it is God who takes life, not me. That's what Rabbi Chalakah was telling this person. And that's what Elazar had to face. Everything that happened to me, I'm standing at the well and I make a deal with God. This is the sign. And what does the verse say? Before he finished speaking, Rebecca shows up. That was his doing. He immediately told Abraham in the beginning of the oath, well, what happens if I find a girl but she doesn't want to come? And Abraham answers him what? Before he even tells him if she can't come, then there's no shidduch, 
he says something else before that. You remember what he said before that? He didn't just answer him, okay, then don't take her. He says, the angel of God that goes before me will go with you. That answers your question. By the way, technically speaking, you asked me a technical issue of the oath. The oath doesn't include that. If she's not coming, don't take her. But that's not what he said first. He's reminding him what Rabbi Chadakov reminded Shliach. He's reminding him what this doctor in Western reminded me. The angel of God who goes with me is now going with you. You're my shliach. You're my servant. And thus, Elazar understands that the success of his mission is by him defining himself not as the prince of Nimrod, not as the dole umashke of Avraham, not as the warrior who took out the four kings, but simply as Eved Avraham Anochi. That's who I am. So the second part of the story is what? The second part of the story carries the theme to the next level. How? The first part of the story tells us what is eternal life. The second part of the story tells us the only way to embrace eternal life is to surrender yourself. To see yourself as a conduit to eternal God. Thus I am born, thus I will die, and in between I am an ongoing conduit to eternal life. Then comes the closing of the Torah portion. The closing of the Torah portion is very interesting. There are moments, I want to talk about first the first part, Isaac. There are moments for station identification. There are moments in your life. They're not very comfortable moments because no one likes station identification. But there are those moments where it must become very clear. Yes, you and Isaac are half-brothers. Yes, it's all true. But you kids are going to leave and Isaac is my sole inheritor. One of my favorite children's movies from Disney which my kids laugh at me because they've heard me give me actually lectures on this is The Lion King. The Lion King is the perfect story for what we're talking about. Simba will eventually have to take his place on Rock Pride it's called. He's going to have to take his place there. If you're not willing to take your place there, then you can't really embrace what we're talking about, eternal life. The Jew who can't accept the words chosen people is really going to struggle with the eternity of our people. So this is actually made up of both sides. I want to tell you an interesting story. The second Lubavitcher Rebbe was put into Cheder together with all the other kids. But very quickly it proved to be that the second Lubavitcher Rebbe was cut out of a different material. And he outgrew his teachers quickly and eventually he had to move on very quickly to higher education. So his classmates complained to the teacher, hey, we grew up together. Well, why is he being treated special? So the teacher told him a very interesting story. He said there was once a pig farmer, a guy who farmed pigs. And one day, a bird came crashing down in his farm. The bird broke a wing. So he went and he took the bird and he mended the wing, but now it's going to take a while until it mends. You know, he put on whatever, a sling, whatever he did to that bird. But where does he put the bird? He doesn't have birds. He has pigs. So he puts the bird together with the pigs. And sure enough, the animals start getting along. They start eating together, drinking together, playing together. Everything's beautiful. They're all best of friends. Bird and pigs. But then the day comes where the bird heals. And the farmer takes off the sling, holds up the bird, and the bird takes off. And the pigs looked at the farmer and said, hey, that's not fair. We ate together. We drank together. How come we can't fly and how come he could fly? 
And the farmer looked at the pigs and said, Silly pigs, of course he was mixing and mingling with you, but he's a bird. You're not. That's what happens in The Lion King. That's what goes on over and over with the Jewish people. We mix, we mingle, we do business together. But then, every once in a while, there's a station identification. Every once in a while, there's a Mark Twain moment where the Jews find out that, of course, we're all equal, we're all great, it's a world of democracy. But we, the Gentiles, look at you, to quote Mark Twain, as the conscious of the human race. And until the Jewish person is not willing to hear, I've got a bunch of brothers. There's the one brother from Hagar. There's the bunch of brothers from Keturah who happens to be the same woman. But at the end of the day, there's a moment where Isaac, as Simba, Lahavdol, has to walk up Pride Rock. He has to realize that he is the conduit of eternity. We expect from him differently than we expect from everyone else. And thus, until he himself cannot embrace that, until he can't embrace that I am Isaac, I'm not Ishmael, I'm not Yoktan, and all the other names there. I am Isaac. I am my mother's eternity. I am my father's eternity. I am God's eternity upon this earth. Until he can't accept that, that painful moment that we all try to hide from, because the one thing we don't like to be is separated and different. It's the curse of oil, so to speak. All liquids will mix, not oil. Try and try and try and beat it and shake it. The oil will eventually rise back up to the top. Until we can't get over the uncomfortability of the definition of chosen, every single human being is a son of God. However, there was the mission statement given to the human race, which is the seven Noahide laws, which just says one thing, not an easy thing. Be a decent person. In Yiddish, zai amensh. But the Jewish people weren't told zai amensh. They were told something beyond zai amensh. What does swinging a chicken over your head, Erev Yom Kippur, have to do with being a mensch? What does not wearing wool and linen have to do with being a mensch? And I can go on and on and on. True, by the way. Maimonides says that every mitzvah is to make a mensch out of you. But there's clearly something deeper than that. And Mark Twain realized it. Throughout the history of mankind, there were individuals that realized it. Some of them were driven to anti-Semitism and the final solution because of what they realized. But until we cannot accept the identity that we have brothers and sisters, we have six billion of them. And we have to care for every single one of them. But rock pride has room for a special person called Isaac. Why is he special? Because he individually is great? No. Go back to the middle of the Torah portion. Because Eved Avraham Anochi. I was chosen to be the absolute slave of God. Do you know what that means to be the absolute servant of God? Let me tell you what it means. What it means is that God is in our closet telling us what clothes we can wear and what clothes we can't wear. God is in our kitchen telling us what food we can eat and what food we can't eat. God is telling us in every single detail. Forgive me, my friends. Do you know that there's a part of the Code of Jewish Law which talks about the laws of a restroom? Can you tell me any religion that does that? Who has God in their restroom? We do. You know why we do? Because I go to the restroom. And if I'm the servant of God, guess who's going with me to the restroom? Because as a servant of God, I am that even when I'm in the restroom. 
So God and the Jewish law is actually telling me the definition of modest behavior in the restroom. Why is that so? That's so because what Mark Twain said. The Jewish people don't have this luxury of being me and at certain moments the servant of God. We always have the mandate to be the conscious, the divine conscious to the human race. And that's why the Israeli army will do what no other army does and yet will have a finger pointed at them. Because they are held up to higher, to higher standards. Why? Why? There's not an army in the world that treats those who try to kill them the way the Israeli army treats the people that live in the Gaza who are consistently planting bombs. Why do we have to do that? Why do I have to know that there's a rabbi in this community who lost his nephew because he knocked on the door in Gaza instead of blanket bombing Gaza when every other country would have done it? It's very simple why. Mark Twain told us why. Allah, the servant of Abraham, told us why. Ebed Avraham Anochi. So people, let's sum it up. Step number one. The definition of life is eternal life. The life that begins when you're born and dies when you die is not eternal life. From the perspective of the supernal knowledge, you've never existed if you begin when you begin and you end when you end. What will define that you are eternal is in between the beginning and the end, you've done something that is eternal, that will live on long after you shed your physical vessel. How is that done? It's done when you're willing to let go of your own definition of me. When you're willing to take on that who am I? Listen to Mark Twain. Eved Avraham Anochi. I am the servant of Avraham. What I do do, it's because of that power. And what I think I can't do, I'm wrong because of that power. So give it up. Surrender. Surrender being just what you think you are. Be all you can be and then let go. Dare to believe and trust God. And then there's a third part which often is very difficult. More difficult than trusting God. Very often I'm pushed against the wall and I have no choice but to trust God. So I let go. I don't do what I think I have to do. And I do what I'm told God said I should do in the code of Jewish law. That's not as difficult and as scary as in the face of the human race to walk up rock pride. To go and identify who I am to the human race. Eved Avraham Anochi. Our boys in green are different than other armies. Our people lives up to different standards. I accept that because it is the responsibility of the word chosen. People, thank you.